and glorify you. And we pray it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, air fist bump to the person next to you and then be seated. Air fist bump. All right, if you're, yeah, if you're a husband, wife, you can go ahead and give a full on whatever. But all right, you may be seated. If you're a first time, first time guest here at First Baptist Church, we're so glad to have you here. And the seat backs in front of you are these uh, connection cards, we call them. And we would love to have a record of your visit with us. And we will not harass you, I promise you. We just simply want to have, uh, uh, know who you are. And, and if you could give us that information, then once you fill this out, you say, well, what do I do with it now? Does anybody have any idea? Any from one from First Baptist know what to do with these once you fill them out? Huh? Do what? Give it to an usher. But what if you don't know where the ushers are? Right back in the back, there's a box, and it's got a cross on top of it, and that's where our members put their tithes and offerings in. But as a guest, we just want you to put your guest card, and uh, if, you have any informa- if you need information about our church, please fill that out on the back. Now, I've got a whole bunch of announcements. Today, we're going to be preaching, Lord willing, on promises relevant to Christians. Uh, our nursery is open again. Let people know about that. <coughs> <coughs> And our kids' ministry is going to open very, very soon. Welcome to those who are watching by Facebook and YouTube. We're glad to have you here. This Friday, we have a blood drive. It'll be at Imperial Beach, uh, and it's at 1461 to 1463 Palm Avenue. I'll put this on the back table, uh, but if you could uh, make an appointment, they would appreciate it. So it's got the information, got the phone number to call. Uh, But you know what? Uh, they say a quart of blood, if you get a quart, if you give a pint of blood, if you give a gallon, you can save a lot of people's lives, all except for your own. So, <clears throat> yeah, not a quart, not, just, just, just just pint down, it's no problem, okay? So go ahead and, and check this out. I'm going to not say anything else about it before I really ruin it, okay? Uh, also, Ladies Bible Study will be starting at Nancy Trotter's house on May the 6th. And we're going to have all the specific information, uh, address, phone number, instructions, how to get there. We're going to have that uh, for you in the bulletin in the weeks to come. Uh, But May the 6th is when that starts. Dan, could you come and share an announcement with us about what we're starting with the men's prayer breakfast coming up? And, And I was over there, Dan, this week, and there's no more large tables inside, but there's a large one on the outside. So maybe well, we will figure that out. We'll figure that out. So uh, the men's breakfast is going to be starting uh, two weeks from now, and we are really looking forward to getting our men back together and sharing some fellowship and just hearing about your experiences in the last year. All right, Panera Bread, 8 a.m. on the first Saturday in May, and there is a large table outside. Inside, there's still social distancing, so I don't know that we'll be able to put all the tables together, but all the guys are invited to that. Silent Voices, next week, Silent Voices Baby Shower, and we want you to bring some gifts uh, for babies, for newborns, and we're going to be giving those to Silent Voices Ministry, which is a counseling ministry to help uh, young ladies in trouble with pregnancy that was either unplanned, unwanted, or whatever, uh, and as a alternative to abortion to encourage them to keep their babies, and we want to give them gifts and so on. So if you could bring those next Sunday. Also, uh, promises, the message will be promises in the physical realm. <clears throat> 
Uh, we got a little feedback there. Yeah, children's teachers needed. Our target date is June the 6th. Uh, watch the video, do the background check. Talked to Julie this week about that. And I think I got everything in. Here's my <clears throat> bulletin article uh, for this week. Lessons mega churches can learn from smaller churches. Pat and I were privileged to pastor and serve in a church that grew up to over 1,500 for 41 years in total. It was a wonderful experience, but I want you to know there's some great blessings in pastoring a church that is smaller. I read an article a couple of years ago by someone named <clears throat> Tony Lerman who listed four reasons megachurches, uh, four lessons megachurches could learn from smaller congregations. And this is my summary from that article. <clears throat> First of all, every person is important. Every single person in this building is important. It's easy to get lost in a large crowd. You can even hide in one. But it's easier in a small church to notice and to make everyone feel welcome, visitors especially. Are we doing our very best uh, to make everyone who comes in a VIP, a very important person? Dan, we, we'll kick that ministry back up once this COVID thing is over and hopefully pretty soon, sooner than later. Uh, because we want everyone to, to feel like that they were welcome when they came into First Baptist Church. Uh, you, maybe you've had the experience, I certainly have, <clears throat> of visiting a church and walking in and people go, Ethel, who is that? <laughs> I don't know, I've never seen him before. Kind of got a weird hairstyle. I don't know. You know, and nobody's saying anything good. We don't want that. We want you to be uh, welcome, and we want everyone, everyone here is officially deputized to welcome everybody else that comes in. So that's the first thing. Every person important. Secondly, all of us are called to serve. Every member, a minister. Every one of us have some kind of calling, some kind of gifting, and God wants you to put that to good use. In a large church, there's often a large staff, and they sometimes become the ones who do much of the ministry. A smaller church doesn't have that luxury. The members must carry the load and serve each other. First Baptist Church does that very well. But let me ask you the question. If you're attending First Baptist Church or you're a member here, are you serving and in what way? Number three, be connected. It's vital to get connected to other people in the congregation. It may be through a Bible study or working in a ministry or just inviting people to come to your home for a meal. Uh, most people need connection. So take the initiative. If you're sitting there saying, nobody said hi to me, you go around and say hi to people, all right? Make the connection. Number four, celebrate the victories. Share the good news when God answers a prayer, when God heals you, when God opens up a place for you to live, when God uh, provides a, a, a soulmate for you, when God uh, stirs your heart and you get born again, let people know and celebrate it. Uh, when you get baptized, celebrate it. When you join the church, celebrate it. Uh, all of these things. We are family, and family should be a place where everyone is cherished, and good news for one is good news for all. Pat and I are thrilled to be serving here at First Baptist Church. We love you very much and hope you feel very, very important because you really are. So let's all the important people stand up and the ones who cannot, you're still important as we continue to worship the Lord.
Thank you, praise team. If all you have is Christ, you are wealthy beyond imagination. You may be seated. And boys and girls, well, moms and dads, first of all, the verse I want you to turn to for our message this morning, Promises Relevance to Christians, is uh, found in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. That's where it begins, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. But now, boys and girls at home and boys and girls here in the auditorium, um, one of my favorite times is to have a little word with you. Remember last week, I asked you about how good would you have to be to get to heaven? Remember that? And remember, we figured out you couldn't really be good enough at all to get to heaven. So I want you to put your thinking caps on again. All right, snug them down, get them on real good. And I want you to think about this. What is the worst sin ever? What is the worst sin ever? First of all, boys and girls, you have to remember what sin is, okay? Sin is when we break God's commands. Sin is disobeying God. If we break one of his ten commandments, it's sin. If we uh, disrespect our mom and dad, it's sin. If we take something that doesn't belong to us, that belongs to someone else, it's sin. If we know what is right to do, but we don't do it, the Bible says it's sin. So we know there are a lot of different sins, but I got a question for you this morning. What is the absolute worst sin ever? Is it lying? Is it cheating? Is it hitting someone? Is it killing someone? Any of those? Here's the problem, okay, boys and girls? Here's the problem. When we start thinking about what's the worst sin of the whole wide world, when we sin, we affect people around us. So if I steal something, it might have been yours, and you might have needed it very, very much. It might have been something of value or something that you depended on, and so that hurts you. If I lie about you, then I hurt your reputation, and that might hurt you in other ways that we can't even think about right now. If I kill someone, that would really hurt them and their future. So it seems to us like some sins are worse than other sins, right? I mean, if you're going to lie about me or shoot me, I'd rather you lie about me, okay? Just putting that out there. Just uh, just remember that. Now, suppose this, boys and girls. Suppose I kept all of God's commandments but one. Suppose I kept every one of them. Now, I got to tell you, boys and girls, I can't really do that. I can't go a whole day without sinning. Sometimes I can't go a whole hour. Sometimes I can't go a few minutes. I'm just going to leave it there. Uh, but I can't, but, but if I could go a, a whole day, a whole week, a whole month, a whole year, uh, a whole bunch of years, uh, decades, if I could go uh, without breaking one of his commandments, every day of my life, I lived without breaking his commandments. And on the last day of my life, if I broke one of his commandments, guess what that would make me? A sinner. A sinner. In the Bible, the book of James says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Wow. Sin is pretty powerful. If one thing in a lifetime of 74 years or 80 years or 100 years, if only one sin is all it took to make us a sinner, it's a powerful thing. But I know something that's even more powerful. That's the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what, boys and girls, you know what? There's only one sin that'll keep us out of heaven. Only one sin, and that's refusing to believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. 
rejecting him as our Savior. Matthew chapter 12 teaches that for all other sins, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for your sin, for my sin, and sins of people who will never, ever even come to him at all or even care about him. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So you see, boys and girls, it's very important that you make sure you have, you have your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. And if we can help you, your teachers can help you. If I can help you, uh, then you let us know, and we'll be glad to talk to you about what you need to do to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, thank you, boys and girls, for paying attention. Moms and dads, Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The name Christian was originally coined as a nickname. The first time they used the word Christian, it was a nickname for those who followed Christ. It was first used here by the citizens of Antioch who observed something very interesting. They found out that people who followed this Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, uh, that they began to imitate him. They began to be like him. They began to think like he thought. They began to act and talk like he acted and taught. And so they called them Christians, which means literally little Christs or models of Christ. I wonder if that would happen today. I wonder if you and I, wonder if you and I live enough of a life that's different from the world that, that someone would say, you know what, they must be a Christian because of the way they talk, the way they act, the way they walk, the way they are. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, when he, Barnabas, had found him, Saul, and Saul in the Hebrew meant asked of God, later he would be renamed Paul, which from the, is from the Latin meaning small. So he went from asked of God to someone who was small in his own sight, and as well he should be, and he brought him to Antioch, and it came to pass that after a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught many people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. So it's a nickname. It's like um, there's a, a Wesleyan denomination named after Charles and John Wesley. They took that name. There are, are people who, in, in a theological construct, believe uh, John Calvin's theology. They're called Calvinists and so on. So this is the idea. that They were called Christians at Antioch because they were imitators of Christ, Jesus the Christ. The word Christian, interesting, is only found in two other verses in the entire Bible. Did you know that? In Acts 26, 28, Agrippa said to Paul, when Paul was brought before him and, and put on trial, and Paul began to plead his case, and Paul, being Paul, began witnessing to uh, Agrippa, and I mean, he was hammering. He was going over the Romans road and the plan of salvation, the four spiritual laws. Uh, I mean, he was doing it all, you know? And, and Agrippa said, hold it, hold it, hold it, Paul. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. So those are the only three places in the entire Bible where the word Christian is found. The term used most of the time for those who follow Christ was disciple, okay, or learners. How many have ever heard the song, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line, all are blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. How many have heard that song? About five or six of you? Yeah, good song, huh? Except it's wrong. <laughs> it, 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 one, only one problem with it, it's not true. Theology, by the way, messes up a lot of our songs <laughs> if you get to checking it out really close. Jews were, getting, were given certain promises. I was not promised the Holy Land. 
I'm a Christian. I was not promised that God would give me and my descendants the Holy Land uh, in, in, in Israel. Uh, Gentiles were given certain promises. Christians were given certain promises. And so we want to talk about the promises that are relevant to you and me. And obviously, we don't have time to go over all of them, but I'm going to mention some of them today. Jesus, first of all, said he would build his church. Matthew 16, 18. <clears throat> And I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Simon Peter was the leader uh, of the disciples and, and consequently a leader in the very early church. And the passage has two conflicting interpretations. And Ryan, you and I talked about this one time, and, and I, I've got to kind of apologize a little bit and back up because I did a little bit more studying on this. Uh, but two conflicting interpretations. I was taught in Bible college, that Peter meant stone or a little rock, small rock, and that Christ was meant the rock, capital R-O-C-K, the foundation. Uh, and, and that there was a play on words here, and that Jesus said, you are a little stone, but I am the rock, and upon this church, myself, the rock, I will build my church. The only problem with that is, as I began to study that some more, Ryan, I couldn't find many commentaries that espoused that particular viewpoint. And it kind of was unnerving to me. Uh, and, and so I know uh, there was a play on words, and, and that the play on words occurs in this way. Jesus said to Peter first, who do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So I'm going to tell you what I think that rock was now. Uh, that I, It's kind of my viewpoint has changed a little bit. You are Peter, and on this rock, or this rock foundation of the fact of your confession. He's building the church on the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the foundation. He is the living God. Now, it's, it's in the Greek, if you, if you take Greek, I took one year of Greek, which qualifies me just to be dangerous. I can find out things from the original Greek that the, even the authors didn't think about. So I've got to be really careful about that. Uh, but in the Greek, Peter is called Petros, and, and in the Greek New Testament, the, the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church is Petra with a feminine ending. So uh, it would seem like, okay, there's two different things referred to, but Jesus didn't speak this Greek in his day. He spoke Aramaic, and when he spoke Aramaic, the Aramaic passage says, you are Kepha, and on this Kepha, I will it's the same word. You are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So it's the idea that not he's building upon Peter. And I think the, uh, the, the reason so many Protestants were espousing the other belief was because of the concern about the idea of, of Peter being the first pope and the Roman Catholic Church and so on. Um, but that's not what Christ is saying either. Uh, and what he is saying here, and this is the other interpretation, that the church was to be built not on Simon, Simon Barjona as a person, but upon him as the heaven-sent confessor of the faith and the confession that Jesus is, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. Either way, and those are the two interpretations, either way, Christ was the builder of his ecclesia his called out assembly. We are called out of the world to assemble like we're doing now. We're not called out of the world to look on TV all the time, the rest of our lives. Uh, we're called out to assemble. It's important. Assembling is important. Human touch is important. Have you noticed that? I'm telling you, what, what, I hugged this 
lady right down here many times a day. If all of a sudden I couldn't hug her anymore, I, I, she'd be so sad. <laughs> and I would be terribly broken up. So we're, we're the called out, the called out of the world, called to assemble for the purpose of worshiping our God. Christians are the building blocks of the church, not buildings. Christians are the building blocks. The book of Acts is a wonderful book of history uh, of the early church and shows God adding to his assembly uh, those that would be saved. And the original disciples numbered 11. You remember that after Judas um, betrayed the Lord, after he planted that traitorous kiss on Jesus' cheek, there were 11 disciples left in Mark chapter 16, verse 14, uh, and later appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. In that same chapter, Acts 1, 15, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, or rather in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 15, and said the number of names together, about 120. So they grew from this group of 11 disciples to about 120 who were meeting in the upper room. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the day of Pentecost, they that gladly received his word were baptized and added unto them about 3,000 souls. So now we go from the 11 to 120 to 3,100 and 20. <laughs> uh, so we've had a little bit of a church increase there, a little bit of growth. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Not Sunday, but daily. Every day, as those 3,120 people went out into their places of work, into their communities and neighborhoods, they began planting the gospel seed by telling people about their own faith and telling people about how they trusted Christ as their personal Savior, and people began to put their faith in the Lord. In Acts 4, 4, howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Now here 5,000 men get saved. If you got 5,000 men, I'm not sure if this means humanity or if it means males. If it's 5,000 males, you got probably about 5,000 women, and you got a big crowd. You got a mega church all of a sudden here. In Acts 5, 14, and believers were the more added to the church, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 5, 28, uh, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine uh, as an accusation that the government was making against the, the Jews, the Christians rather. And, and some estimates say that half of the population of Jerusalem became Christian because of the activity and the zeal and, and, the, and the, uh, the discipleship going on and the soul winning going on by the early church. In Acts chapter 6, next chapter, verse 1, in those days the number of disciples was multiplied. It continues to grow, a snowball effect. In Acts 6, verse 7, the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. In Acts 21, 20, and when they heard it, the, Paul's report of what God was doing with the Gentiles, they glorified God, and he says, Thou seest how many thousands of Jews there are who believe, and they were zealous of the law. And so they continued to grow. God said, Jesus said, I will build my church upon this rock, the foundation of the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and they went from 11 to 120 to, uh, to 3,120 to pretty soon multitudes were added to another 5,000 being converted to, to many multitudes more to where half of the city became professing Christians. And you know what that tells me? One thing it tells me is God is into church growing. God is into church growth. God is into adding too. God is not, he doesn't want, you know, you know living things grow. Uh, I'm continuing to grow. <laughs> A bad example. Um, 
Living things grow. If you plant, my wife has been planting tomatoes, uh, seeds, and, and she's got all these plants that are growing. We've got one left over from last year, one plant that is like eating our backyard. It's just huge and, and, and massive, and uh, it's a living thing. It continues to grow. Rocks don't grow. Uh, non-living things don't grow, but living things do. And the church of Jesus Christ is a living organism, not an organization. There should be organization within the organism. Our bodies are an organism, and there's organization and purpose. Uh, but, But the church is an organism. So Jesus is building his church in 2021 just like he was in A.D. 45. A.D. 50. Secondly, Jesus said he was coming back again. His first coming was promised as early as the book of Genesis. We went over that recently, so I won't repeat that. But there are many prophecies talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? He came. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea. His resurrection was promised. He taught his disciples. He said, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go into Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. Guess what happened? He said, I am the resurrection. You know what the word for resurrection is there? Anastasia. I am the Anastasia. I am the standing upright again. I am the living Savior. He arose just like he said he would. His ascension back to the Father was promised in heaven. John 16, 28, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go to the Father, he says, in John 16. And you know what he did? Forty days after the resurrection, he ascended into heaven and went back to his father. His second coming was promised. In John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, what? There you may be also. So his, he promised his second coming. And guess what? He is going to come back again. Well, it's been 2,000 years, preacher. He hadn't come back in 2,000 years. Yeah, a day is with, as 1,000 years, 1,000 years a day with the Lord. It's been a couple of days. He hadn't come back yet. But guess what? He's going to come back in his own time period, and his own, and his own uh, sovereign will is involved in it, but he will come back. This is our Christian hope that Christ is coming back for it. And I'm going to tell you something. I, with the way that the world's looking right now, I really think we might be in the very last generation living on earth before Christ comes again. I mean, I think we're getting set up for the Antichrist. I think we're getting set up for one world government, one world religion, one world everything. I think, we're, I think all the pieces are falling into place. So you better be listening for the trumpet sound because he's coming back one of these days. But if he doesn't come back right away and things get progressively worse, which they may, The next promise is special. Jesus said he would never leave us. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will never. And you've you've heard it explained by preachers probably that there's this triple negative. I will never, ever, ever leave thee. I will never, never, never leave thee. The emphasis is by the repetition. I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. And to you who are in the military, whether it be the Navy, whether it be the Marine Corps, whether it be the Army, whether it be the Coast Guard, whether it be uh, uh, National Guard, whether it be Air Force, whatever it is, to you who serve, uh, he is with you on the battlefield. 
And when awful things happen, and I'm certain they do, I'm certain I have no idea how awful it can be on the battlefield. I want you to know that God's supernatural presence is with you because he promised never to leave you nor forsake you. I've been reading in in the Old Testament about Samson and the Philistines and the miraculous things that God did for him and through him on the battlefield. I've been reading about David fleeing from uh, either facing Goliath or fleeing from Saul, what miraculous things God did. I just watched a TV special on how the states got their shapes and and how that uh, when the British had come into Washington, D.C. again and set the, uh, the, the White House on fire and another building, was it the Capitol building? Uh, set, set a couple of buildings on fire. I didn't, I'd never heard this before. There was a, a terrible storm and the storm killed more uh, English soldiers than, than the Patriots did. And it routed them, and the, the, the attack was called off because of that. God is with us on the battlefield. God is with you in the hospital bed. The Bible says he is the great physician. He is absolutely the great physician. He, I, I, if, if I'm going to have someone working on me and cutting out my gizzard or whatever, I, I, want the, I want the very best doctor there is. I want the very best um, anesthesiologist. I want the very best um, nurses. I mean, I want people to know what they're doing. But let me tell you something. You can have the, the, the elite uh, A-team of medical professionals and still be in trouble. So you need the great physician most of all because he can heal without a scalpel. He can heal without anesthesia. He can heal because he'll be with us when we're in the hospital bed. He can be with you in prison. He can be with you when you're behind closed the the bars, whether it's because of some crime that was committed or whether it's because of persecution. He'll comfort those who seek him there. He is with you when everyone else has left you. One of the saddest passages in the Word of God is, is the psalmist in one Psalm 142, verses 4 and 5. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. Listen to this. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto the Lord, and I said, Thou art my refuge. In other words, my shelter and my portion in the land of living. I wish, I wish somehow every tortured soul that winds up on this bridge with the idea of ending their lives would know that there are people who care for them. There are people who love them because they're made in the image of Almighty God. No one is a throwaway. Did you know that? No one is a throwaway. Every life is precious. God is the giver of life. God is the one who formed and fashioned each one of us in our mother's womb, made us as we are with unchangeable characteristics. God is the one. And if you know someone who's crying out, no one cares, assure them God cares. Assure them there's a preacher that cares. Assure them there's a church of people that care. Jesus said, next of all, he would supply all of our needs. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all you need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. The psalmist said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'll have everything I need. The psalmist said again in Psalm 34, 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. If a son 
of yours asks bread from you as a father, will you give him a stone? If he asks for fish, will you give him a serpent instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, being sinners, being evil, or being sinful, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He's going he's to take care of us. Through COVID, he's going to take care of us. Through riot and civil unrest, he's going to take care of us. Through the battles, he's going to take care of us. He will give us this day our daily bread. And by the way, it's daily bread. You need it every day. You need the bread of life every day, not just on Sundays. An analogy can be drawn from from the blessings of manna in the Old Testament when they went into the wilderness. Have you ever been in the Sinai? Anybody been to the Sinai? What's growing there? Nada. I mean, you know, there's some little creepy creatures that come out at night every once in a while, but I'm telling you, there's nothing there. And for 40 years, a nation lived, a nation of a million and a half people or so lived and died in that wilderness. And how did they live? In Exodus 16, 14, when the dew evaporated in the morning, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. It kind of looks like snow. Let's go to the next slide a little bit early. That's kind of a picture of, of someone's rendition, someone's interpretation of Exodus 16. It was like fine frost blanketing the ground, and the Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked one another. They had no idea what it was, and Moses told them, it's the food that the Lord God has given you to eat. These are the Lord's instructions. Each household shall gather as much as it needs. Pick up two quarts for each person in your tent. So the people of Israel did as they were told, and some gathered a lot, some only a little bit. But don't keep it any leftovers until morning. Now, Pat and I love leftovers. We are, I, I, sometimes leftovers are better than the first run. I mean, on something, we, we love leftovers, so we always love, but here, if you were in the wilderness and you're picking up this manna, you were not to save it overnight because some of them didn't listen to what Moses said and they kept it to the morning. And when they woke up in the morning, it was full of the Bible says maggots and had a terrible smell. And on, on the Sabbath, on the sixth day, rather, before the Sabbath, they gathered twice as much as usual. And that manna that normally would corrupt overnight on Friday when it was gathered did not corrupt for Saturday. God preserved it. But here's the point. It was the daily manna. It was the daily bed. They had to go out and get the daily bread. We've got a devotionals back there right now on that table. It's called the daily bread. You know why? It is food for your soul, and you need food for your soul every single day. Well, they used to be there until Margie got them all. So, yeah. <laughs> food for your soul. This Every morning, every morning. Almost every morning, sometimes things happen, but almost every morning, one of the first things I do is get into the Word of God. What does God have to say to me today? The other thing I do almost every single morning is eat breakfast. Sometimes I do it twice. <laughs> you know why? I need physical food daily, or at least I want physical food daily. <laughs> And guess what? I need spiritual food daily. It's not just a matter of wanting. I need it. Even if I don't want it, I need it.
By the way, anybody know what the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. House of bread. Our Savior was born in the house of bread. When Jesus was tempted on the wilderness and he went 40 days without eating physical food, he said these words, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There's a bread that is beyond our physical food. There is the bread of the word of God. There is the bread of the son of God. And he is the bread that we need, not just once a week, every single day. Jesus said, one day we will thirst no more. That's another promise he gives to us. Revelation 7, 15, they, those martyrs who came out of the great tribulation, shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Jesus was sitting by, uh, uh, by a, uh, a well, and a Samaritan woman came by. The Samaritans and Jews had nothing to do with each other. They were, they were antagonistic to each other. They were uh, both thought too good to associate with the other person. And so here's Jesus, sitting, a Jew, sitting at the well, and this Samaritan woman comes by, and the Samaritan woman, uh, to her amazement, Jesus starts talking to her, which thing wouldn't normally happen at all. And he said to her, whosoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst but the water that I give shall be in them a well of water springing up into everlasting life. <laughs> Did you know that you, you can go a lot longer without food than you can water? You can go, I mean, there have been people, I, I, I know in the Bible there are kinds of fasts, and there's some supernatural fasts that are uh, 40 days. Moses, as far as I know, had the, the, the longest continuous fast ever it was 40 days he came down the mountain went back up another 40 days 80 days without eating that's not humanly possible that's a miraculous feast please do not go on an 80-day fast i'm not worried about most of us doing that but you can go a long time you remember back when the ira um i'm not talking about investments i'm talking about the irish republican army some of you will remember this, when they went on hunger strikes, they, and some of them would, would go for 40 or more days without eating, and some of them died as a result of that. You have to have water. I can't remember. I, 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 I didn't look it up, but I, I think maybe you have to have water. Most of you can go is maybe three days or four days, maybe, maybe a little bit longer than that. I don't know, maybe, under certain circumstances. Water's necessity for physical life. Our cells, our bodies are composed of about 60% water. In your case, some of you, about 40% of that is coffee. But anyhow, it is water. Water even comprises about 30% of our bones, believe it or not. Adequate water is always critical, especially in a desert place. And this world, in case you haven't figured it out, is a desert place. So Jesus promises living water in John 4, 10. Something that would not only satisfy the immediate thirst, but it would satisfy their spiritual thirst forever. So Jesus is our bread, born in a house of bread. Jesus is our living water who will satisfy our eternal thirst for God. 
And you add in the agency of the Holy Spirit, he's also our air, our atmosphere as well. In John 3, 8, the wind blows where it will and the sound thereof, and you can't tell uh, from where it, where it go, comes and where it goes, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. And, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And the cloven tongues of fire appeared, and they spoke with other languages. So Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the living water. And Jesus is the very breath. Everything we need is found in him. Is he your Savior? Had you been a disciple in Antioch 2,000 years ago, had I been a disciple in Antioch 2,000 years ago, would people have looked at us and said, that person's a Christian? Or would they be shocked to find it out? You've heard the question posed by someone, someone preaching a sermon somewhere years ago. If you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Next week, we're going to talk about the promises of God in the physical realm in which we live. But right now, are you a little Christ? Am I a little? Are we Christian in our deportment, in the way we live our lives? Would you bow your heads? Our Father in heaven, I can't believe, I guess I can, but I can't believe how lackadaisical we can be about being a child of yours. I can't believe how unconcerned sometimes we can be by the way we act, choice of our words and the activities in which we're involved. I can't believe how we can so easily, it seems, cast a reproach upon your name by responding in some way that's totally fleshly. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict each one of us that whether we're at work, whether we're on the highway, whether we're in our home, whether we're at church, whether we're shopping, wherever we might be, that we would be mindful that we carry within us, if we're believers, we carry within us your Holy Spirit. Our body is your temple. May we not besmirch your reputation. God, help our young people. They live in incredibly turbulent times. They live in incredibly unspiritual days. Classrooms, classmates, Sports teams, whatever. So many are so carnal. Lord, I pray that you'd help us at First Baptist Church. God, help this preacher. Help my wife. Help our leadership team. Help our praise team. Help our teachers and workers. Help our members. Help our visitors, Lord, to be shining lights, examples out in this community and wherever we happen to be. God, live through us. And if there's someone here who's not born again, if there's someone here who's not a Christian at all, may today be the day that they become a Christian. 
with every head still bowed, if you'd like to put your faith and trust in Christ, you can do so by praying a prayer to him and meaning it with your heart, meaning it with everything, every fiber of your being. You can pray something like this, dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm going to die someday and face you. I do believe that there was someone named Jesus Christ who was born and lived and died. And I believe he's your son. And I want to ask him to be my savior, to forgive me of my sins right now. Because you've said, if I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that I can be saved for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So right now, Lord, I ask you, forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my Master. I pray in Jesus' name. With every head still bowed, out of respect, if you just prayed that prayer as a testimony, would you slip your hand up and hold it up real high for just a moment? I won't embarrass you. Just hold it up high. Preacher, I just prayed that prayer. I meant it with all my heart. Sincere as I know how to be. Our Father, we're so thankful for the fact that you're our Savior. We're so thankful that you set in your word examples of how we are to live for you, how we're to be Christ-like in our activities. And I pray, God, that we would recommit as a people we would recommit to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing one verse, maybe two of an invitation. One, maybe two verses, no more than that. So if you're in the very back, you need to come on the very first verse. If you're in the front here and you want to come, my wife is right here. She'll pray with you. Rachel's in the back. She would pray with you. I'm right here. And Dan's right over here, guys. So if you need some spiritual guidance, you want someone to pray with you, some decision you need to make, as we sing these verses, they're just for you, so come ahead right away.
and ask you to be seated for another moment. We have a video about the Live Love Project that is outside. We'll say a little bit more about it in just a moment, but go ahead and watch the video. Live Love Foundation of Salvation presents our newest project, the Homeless Sock Project. God inspired Olivia to find a way to give to the homeless without giving them money. As we all know, it's not always best. Her father, Gary Gorkin, and her created a sock that is filled with more than money. It's priceless because it has the message of God's love, redemption, and forgiveness all wrapped up in a neat little sock ready to hand out next time you have the opportunity. Last week we had a Live Love sock packing party. Everyone was having fun packing those socks. Prayer came first, Grant and Jerry Ann demonstrating how to volunteer efficiently. The guys from GMS Warehouse, Raphael and Alberto, Gary, and our own Pat and Jim. There's Rachel, Anya, Malik, Alicia, and her sister Leanna, Heather, Cindy, and her friends, Blaze and Jerry. There's Keisha, Lauren, and Rachel. Packing and packing and packing over 400 socks. Feel free to stop by our table and make a donation for a package of three and hand them out next time you get a chance. 100% of your donation goes directly to the Homeless Project. Thank you. From Live Love. All right. Last week we picked up five pairs for Pat's car and five pairs for my car, so we're ready over the homeless next time we see them, and I would encourage you to stop out there. I think the cost is $7 each is what your cost is, so we're hoping that uh, they'll be able to at least recover that and maybe give a little bit extra on top of that. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the blessings of life that you give to us, and we're grateful that we can be called Christian. God, may we leave this place and act like one in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being in the Lord's house today. Mm -hmm.